My name is Mike. I am one of the pastors on staff here, and it's good to have you here with us today. Uh, if you're with us for the first time, we are in week four of a series that we have entitled, In This House We Believe. And the, the statement, In This House We Believe, this is usually followed by some kind of declaration of belief when it comes to uh, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about humanity? What do we believe about how life is meant to be lived? And in our culture today, these declarations, we oftentimes find them in some kind of graphic, be it a yard sign, a t-shirt, a, a social media post. And um, you get some things that are sometimes they're silly, sometimes they're serious, sometimes they're polarizing, sometimes uh, they make me depressed. But they're out there. Now, this, this idea of thinking deeply about what we believe to be true and confessing those ideas. To do so in a graphic, that's new. But to do so, period, is not new. It is something that has been done for hundreds and hundreds of years by the culture and by the church. And one of the ways that the church has done this is in something called the Apostles' Creed. And so what we're doing in this series is we're, each week we're taking a section of the Apostles' Creed, because really what the Apostles' Creed is meant to do is to give us a, a summary, if you would, a highlighting of the essentials of the Christian faith. And what we're doing in this series is each week we're taking a section of the creed that summarizes the, the essentials of the faith, and we're kind of reversing the process. We're going, hey, here's, here's a summary statement. Let's take that, go to the scriptures, because really all the creed is doing for us is it is summarizing the, the central truths of our faith as they're described to us in the Bible. And so we're taking a section of the creed and kind of unpacking, hey, what does the Bible have to say about that? So as we continue today, we're going to look at another section of the creed, and today we're going to celebrate Christmas in July. So let's pray, and I'll explain what that means, and then we'll get into things. Father, just today we ask that you would be with us, that you would help us. Fathers, we, we look at the world around us today, um, there is just so much brokenness. On the way in, I, I'm listening to news reports about the unrest and the rioting in France. Father, we pray for, um, for peace. Father, we pray for clarity and for change there. Father, we pray that you'd have your hands on the Bologna family, just as they're mourning the loss of Steve's dad, that you would meet them in that heartache and that you would help them. Father, just whether it's something going on in our world or something going on in our lives personally, I pray that you would help us to see you in that and to find strength in you. Father, I pray that as we just continue to look at the next section of the creed today, that you would help us to see your truth and what that means to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of Christmas in July, First thing that comes to my mind is some commercial with some appliance you know, salesman or some furniture salesman who's trying to convince me, like, this is the lowest price of the year, and if I don't get in now, I'm not going to save the kind of money that I could save on this item that I absolutely have to have. That's not what we're talking about when we say Christmas in July today. 
Instead, today we're going to spend some time in some passages that we would typically be looking at in December. Because the, the part of the creed that we're going to look at today, it, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And really what we're going to do today is not too terribly different than what we've done in previous weeks and what we'll do in future weeks. We're, we're going to just go, okay, hey, does the Bible really teach this idea? This idea that Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, is that really a biblical idea? We're going to look at some of the objections to that idea. And then we're going to talk about how is that relevant to our lives today? How is that relevant to our lives beyond just December? How, how can this be relevant to our lives every day of our lives? And so we'll, we'll start with just with this idea is the doctrine of the virgin birth truly biblical? Because there are people who will tell you that it's not. There are people that will tell you that the creed reflects tradition rather than um, biblical content. So, that being the case, let's, we're just going to really briefly look at some of the biblical narratives that talk about the birth of Jesus. And we'll, we'll start with Matthew. And as Matthew begins, he says to us, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So right out of the gate, Matthew's like, hey, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about how he was born. And Matthew says this. He says, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together... She was found to be pregnant. Now, when Matthew says, you know, before they came together, that, that's a euphemism that Matthew is using that other biblical writers, like Paul will use this euphemism as well. Uh, instead of just coming right out there and saying, before they, they, they were sexually intimate, she was found to be pregnant. And so Matthew right out of the gate is like, hey, Joseph isn't the father. All right? Because before they had any kind of physical relationship, Mary was found to be pregnant. Now that still leaves us with the question of who's the baby daddy? And Matthew doesn't leave us wondering very long. He says, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. R really easy to find. I feel like the Bible really doesn't teach this idea of the virgin birth and you know, the, the conception by the Holy Spirit. It's like it's right there. You can disagree with it, but it's right there. Now, Joseph doesn't know what's going on yet. All right, Joseph is assuming Mary got pregnant the way that every other woman up at that point in history and after got pregnant. That she was physically intimate in some way with some kind of man. That there was some kind of you know, human insemination. And, and so Joseph is thinking that Mary's cheated on him. And so because Joseph is thinking that, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, some people will read this and they'll go, aha, it says he's her husband. Are you really trying to tell me this man is married to this woman and they've never been physically intimate? I just caught, I just caught Matthew in an inconsistency. And I, I appreciate in our culture that thinking, but to think that is a reflection that I really don't understand how marriage worked for first century Jewish couples. Because for first century Jewish couples, if you have a young couple, they just said, hey, we're going to get married, and as usually their families are deciding you're going to get married, they have two ceremonies. They have the first ceremony, where they take their vows, where they sign the paperwork, and legally, they are married. However, that's where things stop. They don't move in together. They don't have any kind of physical relationship with one another. Instead, the bride goes back home to live with her parents. And for about 6 to 12 months, the groom is getting their new home ready. 
And then after that time, they have a second ceremony. And after that second ceremony, they will move in together. They will consummate the relationship. They'll live like husband and wife. They're married on paper after the first ceremony, but they're not married in practice until after the second one. Matthew is telling us that, that Mary comes up pregnant in between the first and second ceremonies. And Joseph, he hasn't been doing anything with Mary that would cause her to be pregnant by him. And so he naturally assumes she's been messing around on him. And so he wants to end the relationship. But because they're married on paper, he has to pursue a legal divorce to end this thing. And Joseph isn't the kind of guy who's going to use divorce to like extract his pound of flesh from this person who he believes done something that's betrayed him. Instead, he's going to try and minimize the kind of shame he expects her perceived behavior to have on her. So he's going to divorce her quietly. But after, she had after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There it is again. Matthew's like super clear. Joseph is not the father of this child. This child was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Jesus can derive his lineage from both his human mother and his father in heaven. Now, that's Matthew. Let's, let's flip over to Luke and see how Luke deals with this. Second Christmas passage. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, twice here, Luke points out that Mary is a virgin. And in the original language, this is a Greek term that is very specific. It identifies someone who has never been physically intimate with another person. So right out of the gate, Luke is like, hey, Mary is someone who has not been sexually active with anybody. Well, Mary hears from the angel, and Luke tells us next that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You will find favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now, Mary's another one of these people who's convinced that, like, there's a way that babies get made. And she, as a virgin, she has not been doing anything that would qualify her to make a baby. And so she asked the, the, the angel, she's like, how will this be since I am a virgin? In other words, I, how's this going to work? Because I, like, I haven't been doing anything that's going to make this happen. Gabriel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay, this idea that the creed is simply reflecting tradition rather than biblical content when it tells us that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that's just nonsense if you understand, if you just take the time to read through the biblical content. It's right there. You can't miss it. Now, that being said, that content comes with objections in our culture today. So let's talk about a few of them. 
What are some of the objections that come with the virgin birth? Well, one of them is this. Some people will say that the virgin birth is nothing more than divine rape. They will tell you Mary had no warning, no choice, and no desire in this whole thing. In fact, some will even go so far as to write things like this. Mary was not a wild child, but a girl living in a rigid patriarchal world who was raped by her husband, a soldier, or some other predator. In the biblical narrative, the predator was God. Now, this is not uncommon. Here's the thing with objections like this. Again, if you just take the time to read through and understand the biblical narrative, these begin to fall apart pretty quickly. For example, Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she will conceive. That's future tense, not present tense. You can't say that Mary had no warning, that all of a sudden she's pregnant, had no idea that this was ever a possibility or could come, when Gabriel's here telling her before it's ever happened that this is what is coming down the line. And this idea that, that Mary had no choice in the matter, stop and think. Gabriel, Mary says, how's this going to work? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. And Gabriel explains to her that the Holy Spirit is going to come and overshadow her and she's going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Mary's response? I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. These are, these are not the words of somebody who has no choice. These are the words of somebody who is choosing to be part of what God is doing. And, and this idea that Mary had no desire to be part of this thing. Mary writes a song about her pregnancy. And in that song, th there are lyrics that describe how she feels about being pregnant. Listen to the lyrics of Mary's song. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. I'm sorry, these are not the lyrics of someone who's writing about a pregnancy that they had no desire to have. And they're just all tore up and they're, they're not happy that it's there. You see, if I'm going to turn to the Bible and try and use it to point an accusing finger at God when it comes to Mary and her conception of Jesus, then logical consistency demands that I take the entire narrative into account. And when I look at the birth stories of Jesus as a whole, this idea of divine assault on Mary, it just doesn't hold up to the biblical content. Other people will make objections in other ways. Some people will say, okay, Matthew and Luke, yep, they got it right. Mary was pregnant. But Matthew and Luke, they were just participating in a 2,000-year-old cover-up to try and credit God with the paternity of Jesus when Matthew and Luke and Mary and Joseph all knew it was Joseph or some other guy who was the father. Now, again, I would contend, when you read through and you just think a little bit about the biblical narrative, this idea begins to fall apart as well. For example, 
Ladies, ladies in the room, think through this scenario with me if you would. All right? Mary is, in our cultural terms, engaged to Joseph. Right? She becomes pregnant by Joseph. In response, Joseph denies that the child is his, even though he knows it's his. Joseph's like, yeah, she's got a bun in the oven, but I ain't the baker. Nope, nope. And then he cuts the relationship off, puts as much distance as he can between himself and the child. Doing so knowing, best case scenario, best case scenario, Mary is going to be thought of by her family and her church and her community. She will be labeled as a whore and her child will be labeled as a bastard. You may say, that, that's really ugly. That was the reality. If she's lucky, her father will let her and the child live in his home. If she is unlucky, she will be relegated to a life of poverty and prostitution. That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, she will be tried under the law as an adulteress and she will be executed as such. Her and her unborn child will die. Now ladies, if Joseph is the father, what kind, what, what kind of sense that, I mean, just stop and think. You're, married, you're engaged to a man, right? You get pregnant by him. And that man denies He's the father of that child. That man cuts off the engagement with you, kicks you to the curb, does everything he can to put distance between himself and you and his child. That man takes action that, that is either going to cause you to live a life of poverty or is physically going to endanger you and your unborn child. Ladies, what would it take for you to be willing to marry that man? See, if Joseph is the father of Jesus, it makes no sense that Mary would marry him. And, and listen, I know some of you will say to me, but Mike, you don't understand. When a woman has been subjected to abuse, she will continue to tolerate that kind of dysfunctional behavior. You, you, Mary is operating in a victim mentality here. That may be true of some woman. Read the narrative the woman we read about in that narrative. Mary, she, she has none of the kind of characteristics you find in somebody who's living in the victim mentality. She is strong. She is independent. She is full of faith. It makes no sense that she would marry Joseph if he's the father of that child. Or guys in the room, I got a scenario for you. You're engaged to be married. You are honoring God's directives for your relationship when it comes to sexuality. You, 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 are, you are doing the right thing, and then your fiancé comes up pregnant. Now, quick survey. How many guys in the room are going to assume your fiancé was cheating on you? Show of hands. How many guys in the room are going to be like, oh, no, God did that? <laughs> exactly, right? Right? Joseph... And what would it take, gentlemen, your fiancé who you are not sleeping with comes up pregnant, what would it take to convince you that God was the father of that child? 
For me, it would take nothing short of like God coming speaking directly to me. See, it makes absolutely no sense that Joseph would marry Mary if another man is the father of that child. It's just crazy. It's just senseless. When you read through the narratives and you think through them, this idea that Joseph or another man is the father of that child, it just doesn't make sense if Mary and Mary, Mary and Joseph get married. Now, one, one, one last objection. Some, some people will say, okay, fine, all right, you got all your logic there, but listen, just, you got to trust the science, man. We, we know. Like, you don't have conception without some form of human insemination. This just, you give me all your logical stuff you want to, all your arguments. You just, this is how babies are made. And here's, here's the real objection that that person holds. It's miracles. Do I believe miracles are possible? Do I believe that there is a God in heaven who is responsible for the totality of creation? Do I believe that God set natural law into order and that he maintains it by the power of his will? And do I believe that God has both the authority and the power to step into natural law and alter its course for his own purposes and for his glory? Because you see, that's, that's what a miracle is. It is God stepping into the course of natural law and altering it for his purpose and his glory. The question is, do I believe in miracles? Do, do I believe that God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk across on dry ground? Do I believe that the walls of Jericho tumbled to the ground because the Hebrews walked around it for a week? Do I believe that, that Elijah prayed and God sent fire from heaven to consume the wood and the sacrifice and the water and the stones to prove that he was God? Do I believe that, that, that three Hebrew boys walked around in a fiery furnace so hot that it consumed the men who put them in there and then God joined them in there before he sent them out to talk to Nebuchadnezzar? Do I believe that Jesus turned water into wine and that he walked down the sea and that he calmed the storm, that he fed 5,000 plus people with some kid's lunchbox? Yes. Yes. Do I believe that Jesus, that he made the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear? Yes. Yes. Do I believe that, that he was beaten beyond human recognition, crucified, died, put in a tomb, left there to rot for three days, and then resurrected from the dead, and now is more alive than you and me? Yes. 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 See, do I believe in miracles? If I believe that God created a not yet universe simply by speaking it into existence through the power of his word, the virgin birth is nothing. It's a piece of cake. I mean, he forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. He's got nothing to work with. With Jesus, half the DNA is present and on hand. Do I believe in miracles or not? If I do, the virgin birth is small potatoes. It's no problem. It ranks pretty low on the scale. Now, if I believe there is no God, 
if I believe we are here because of random chance and evolutionary processes, if I believe that no one and nothing can break into natural law and alter it, then I got problems with the Bible way bigger than the virgin birth. So those are our objections. Those are our objections. Let's, as we wrap this up, let's talk about relevance. Like, what, what, how's the, how's the virgin birth relevant to our lives today? How's it about something more than just what we talk about every now and again in December because we, we, you know, we got, we circle back around to that topic on the advent calendar. We could, we could spend all day just talking about this. We're going to limit ourselves to just a few ideas. Just a few ideas. This idea that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born under the Virgin Mary, like so many sections of the creed, this part of the creed, it stands in defiance to the worldviews that we are regularly offered by our culture. See, the world we live in, it is a brutal, ugly place. Several months ago when I was doing research for this message, the global headlines included things like the war in Ukraine going strong and the conflict in Sudan just heating up. On a national page, we, we had a man who's shooting a gun in, his, in, in the front yard and when his neighbors ask him to stop, he guns five of them down. And we had our third national bank closure here in the States. And then, just personally, I, I watched somebody lose a loved one who they were not ready to let go of yet. I watched somebody else's health just completely tank and begin to swirl the drain. And I watched a couple's marriage totally implode. The world we live in is a brutal, ugly place. And we see examples of this again and again and again. So, let me ask you. What do you do with that information? How do you interpret that? How do you understand life in light of how just cold and hard and vicious this world we live in is? And where do you find hope? See, according to atheism, or evolutionary theory, or secular humanism, or existentialism. This is just how life works. It's a hard, cold world. It's survival of the fittest. There is no purpose. So live as much as you can, enjoy it as much as you can, and then you're going to die. And when you're dead, that's it. There is no redemption. The world we live in offers us pitiless indifference to the hardships that we read about or those that we experience personally. Or our culture will point us to agnosticism or deism. And they're a little better. They'll tell us, yeah, there's, there's, there's a God. He's out there, created it all, set it all into motion, and then he just walked away from the table. You can't know him, he doesn't care, and he's of little help when it comes to the, to, to the headlines that you read and the heartaches that you face. 
the worldviews that our culture presents us with on a regular basis, there is no hope to be found in them. But again, the creed just stands in defiance to that. And it says, no, no, no. We believe in Jesus Christ our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That means there is a God. And he does see. And he cares. He cares about what you are going through, whether it's impacting you directly, personally, right there in your life, or it's something that you're reading about that you still feel. God did something about it. Again, you go back to the Christmas story. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God saw the brokenness of our world. He cared. And when he saw the mess, he came to be with us in the mess. Your God understands what you are going through and what you feel because he has been here. He gets it on an experiential level. He was with you in the mess. And, and, and in Jesus, we don't just have someone who can empathize. As good as that is, we also have someone who did something about the mess. He came to be with us in the mess, but then he addressed the mess. And we, again, we see this in the Christmas story. You flip back over to the other passage towards the end. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, every tragedy that we see in the headlines, every heartache that we experience personally, you can trace that back to sin. Every single one of them. You can trace it back to sin. Now, how it gets traced back to sin is different from one circumstance to the next, but it always comes back to that. So, for example, I, I said, I'm going to live my life outside of God's design, and I blow my life up. My life's a mess. Why? Because of sin. My sin. Or you have somebody who, who lives outside of God's design, and they just rain down just all kinds of consequences on the lives of innocent people around them are paying for their indiscretions. Why are those people suffering? Because of sin. Because of that person's sin. Or we live in a world where there's death and disease and chaos that seems to go unchecked. And you can, again, you can point to sin. Original sin. Sin that broke our planet and caused us to live in a place contrary to what God designed us to experience. It all goes back to sin. And Jesus came to save his people from their sins. I like the way the writer of Hebrews expresses this idea. Captures both of them. The writer says, For this reason he, he being Jesus, made them, them being humanity. For this reason Jesus, this reason Jesus had to be made like humanity. Fully human in every way. Why? in order that he might become a merciful, faithful, high priest in the service of God. There is your empathy. 
He came to be with us in the mess. He gets it. But he didn't just come to be with us in the mess. He came to address it. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. See, the virgin birth, it points us to redemption. It tells us that sins can be atoned for. That Jesus, who never sinned, offered up his life as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins so that we could be made right with God. The virgin birth, it points us to forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And if you keep reading the crazy book, it looks to a time where redemption will be complete, where sin in its entirety will be dealt with and be but a distant memory. See, the the, the virgin birth, it is incredibly relevant to our lives today. And so in this house, we believe in Jesus Christ our Lord, God's only son, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. Would you stand with us, church? As we continue today, we're going to celebrate communion together and then close in worship. Before we do, we want to pray. And if today, just the weight of this world is pushing down on you, be it something globally, nationally, or just right in your life personally, and you are just, you are feeling the weight of that. And you just need a fresh sense that Emmanuel, God is with you. I want to pray for you. And if you're here today, if you're watching online today, and you never said yes to Jesus, who came to save you from your sin, but you've gotten to a place where you figured out, my life's broken. I've lived outside of God's design. I've made a mess myself. I've made a mess for other people around me. I need redemption. I need forgiveness. The forgiveness that Jesus came to bring. I would love to invite you to pray with me and to do that as well. So let's pray together and we'll continue. Father, just for some of us today, whether we're in this room, whether we're watching online. Father, we're just struggling. The brokenness of this world, we just feel it personally. And it just feels hopeless sometimes. It just hurts so much sometimes. Father, some of us, just in the quietness of our heart, we want to cry out to you. In your grace, help us to know in a deep and personal way that you see, that you care, and that you came to be with us. Father, I pray just that those of us who need to today, that we would see clearly what our relationship with you is and what it can be. And some of us today, Father, we just come to you. And we just confess we're broken. We have sinned. 
the mess in our lives, so much of it, it it's ours. We have to own it. And we cannot, we cannot make this right. Thank you that you sent Jesus to save us from our sins. Thank you that he was offered up as an atonement for our sins. The innocent in the place of the guilty. In this moment, we want to put our faith, our hope, our trust in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.